Hey, podcast listeners. This is a discussion between myself, TK Coleman, Steve Patterson, and Derek McGill, all of whom have been previous guests, TK, several times on this podcast. This is a discussion about Bitcoin. And we started flipping on the camera because we were always talking about this stuff privately, flipping on the camera and every couple of weeks doing these discussions just on Zoom and posting them up to YouTube for fun. And uh, they actually got a lot of traction, got a lot of views, a lot of interest. Several people asked me to put it in podcast format. Rather than spin up a new podcast, I decided to just post them right here on the feed for the uh, recently dormant Isaac Morehouse podcast. So what follows is a completely unedited, unfiltered discussion. You can also find it on YouTube if you want to see our wonderful faces between me, Steve Patterson, Derek McGill, TK Coleman on Bitcoin and Bitcoin related stuff. If you're not at all interested or familiar with crypto, there's some stuff that might be a little technical or a little inside baseball that might go over your head. But if I do say so, it's a pretty fun discussion anyway, and you might learn some things. Thanks. All right, we should have uh, TK and Derek should be joining us any minute, but we have Daniel Krawitz, the emperor, the self-proclaimed emperor of Bitcoin, who, uh, Daniel, I trust that you are playing Peggle at this very moment as we speak, because <laughs> that's kind of what you do when you come on these things. Oh, that was just for Richard Hart, because I wanted to um, <laughs> show my contempt for him. Uh, I, don't, I don't have contempt for you guys. Oh, that's I mean, good. I wanted good. to be on your show. Uh, I thought it was really great that you um, got so many smart people together. So uh, I'm I'm glad to be on uh, such an early episode because um, that's just an, another way for me to uh, be be clearly uh, ahead uh, of the trend because I I see great things for uh, for the the group that you've assembled of uh, of numpties. <laughs> <laughs> I like that that word has uh, stuck. Uh, so Daniel, when you when you did that interview, y- did you think going into it, you're going to be like, you know what, I'm going to have Peggle up on the side. And then when the time is right, I'm going to turn up my volume a little bit and let him know that I, I don't like it. Well, uh, gee, I didn't realize that it was making so much sound. I don't understand <laughs> what really happened with that exactly. <laughs> but um because uh, I had my my headphones on, and uh, I, well, I'm I, I don't anyway. It was well, so I knew that the, it wouldn't be a uh, a productive discussion because I knew that all of those core guys only want to humiliate people, and then they're like, ah, I won the argument. So, um, so what my plan was. To, was that I would just act as stupid as possible and only um, someone who was a little bit smarter would realize that I was toying with him. And actually, he would look stupid if he, was, if he spent the whole discussion trying to humiliate someone who was already stupid. Yeah. So, um, I, 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 I thought that was a, a, a really a clever and funny moment. And actually, there was a, a there was a. It looked like you got 
Richard to acknowledge what you were doing. And he like appreciated, I think on some level what you were doing. Cause he chuckled and then he like got back into character afterwards. It was like, Oh, well, I, I, I could tell you about, you know, you, you, you're addicted to games and you should stop being addicted to games. Yeah. Tell you. <laughs> are, are we talking about Richard Hart? Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, yeah Cause I, I, I was telling Daniel that I was assuming he was going to be playing Peggle during this call. And he said no, but we, we just got to talking about that moment. That is still one of my, my favorite interview moments of all time in like any space. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Yeah, um, that was sort of my first moment going out in public. So I was really nervous, but I, I figured out my plan. And Derek, before you got on, I just said that my plan was to act stupid and say the dumbest things I could think of. And that would make Richard Hart look bad because I knew that he would spend the whole time trying to humiliate someone who was already acting stupid. Yep. So yeah, it's he like, hated it. <laughs> and only the, only the most intelligent people watching would actually realize what was going on. And so I knew it wouldn't be a productive discussion. So I just tried to make it into something that would, would attract the, the most intelligent people and would filter out the rest. So that was very good. It worked out perfectly. And uh, yeah, a lot of people have told me that they first learned about me from that interview. <laughs> and they thought Richard Hart was, was funny and, and amusing. But like they're kind of people who, you know, who just think he's like a funny person. And so then they also thought I was a funny character when they saw me on, on his show. So, uh, Daniel, I, I want to dive into a, a discussion with you, and I, I know we all have a lot of questions, but before we do that quickly, since now we have the four numpties, the Bitcoin, num the four numpties of the apocalypse, the <laughs> bunch, whatever we're going to be called, um, everybody's here. Real quick, a whole lot has happened since the last time we, we talked, guys. Like, it was like, what, two weeks ago? So, I just thought we'd do like a really quick... Everybody, if you want to, if there's one or two things that you think are interesting, worth noting that happened since we last recorded, I'll, I'll start. I just had three funny things. Uh, one, I thought it was funny. I, I pissed off. I think it was one of the Twitch founders, but I just, I was just mentioning like a plugin for Slack or something. And anyway, I, it was very offensive to a lot of people in, in, on Twitch that I suggested some people like Slack and micropayments aren't necessarily the best payment method for every single business model. Uh, that was kind of fun. And then I managed to piss off a whole bunch of Bitcoin BTC people by just posting a link to a, to a transaction that cost $1,000. And apparently that is dishonest to do that, to show uh, the Block Explorer exactly what's happening on chain. That was funny. But my favorite thing, my absolute favorite thing, you guys already know what I'm going to say, that happened in the last couple of weeks. Billionaire Playboy BSV investor Calvin Ayer shared our videos and called us either ch uh, moronic children or That's childish morons. I can't remember which one. <laughs> and he requested that we act more dignified. So Calvin, yeah. if you're watching, I just want you to know, request <laughs> has been filed in a special drawer where I keep such requests. We will consider whether or not we want to act more dignified. <laughs> okay, consensus. now, come on. <laughs> I, uh, that sounds like a joke to me because does Cal <laughs> Calvin Air doesn't act dignified. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said if we, he said, 
I think somebody like defended us and he said, if they act more dignified, then I will treat them with more dignity or something like that. But he deleted the tweet later. Oh, whatever. <laughs> so it, it was great. It's been captured. So that was my favorite thing okay. that happened. Calvin what, posts else? all of these pictures about him on his yacht with like, <laughs> um, with young women who are half his age. And I think we, we don't have enough twerking uh, for yeah, his we- style. <laughs> Right. <laughs> let's please let's keep it that way. I want, I, I want, my, I want my lawyers on this episode <laughs> to twerk. No, <laughs> well, no, not that. <laughs> I love that there was a pause. Okay. Well. <laughs> I mean, Cal- what else? What else happened, guys? What's the what's hey, the hey, current? Calvin's a big fan of the show. I, I think yeah. I think the whole tweet was just signaling that he actually he actually enjoys it. So, and we enjoy him. Uh, Calvin, Calvin took me to uh, to Coin Geek twice now, so he's been he's been super generous to me. So so thank you, Calvin. <laughs> hey, we'll, we'll we'll come to Coin Geek again if somebody wants to, you know, offer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love how Steve commented on the post, and Steve goes, "Hey, I love to come to Coin Geek if you you know pay our you know like fly me out there." And then some guy re- responds to Steve like, "Hey, quit begging," and and he just gives Steve Steve a lecture. He oh, said, yeah, "Unbecoming when a man asks another man for alms or something." Yeah, yeah. And I was, and I was thinking, you know, oh, somebody's never been invited to a conference before. Obviously, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't say that, but yeah. And then he deleted it. I, I had some witty, witty retort to him, and then he deleted the comment. And I was like, "Oh, oh man, you chickened out. Come on." No, and it made you look silly because yeah. the comment is like, was like <laughs> it made it seem like poor. I was, yeah, I was like actually begging or something. Oh. Go ahead, TK. I just love the power move. I, I love the power move. I love the way Calvin just took control of the entire frame by letting us know that he is now the standard for what it means to act <laughs> dignified. And even though we've received no instructions on what was childish about us, now we have to play his game of yeah. trying to figure out how we need to act, and he'll let us know if we're being dignified. <laughs> it reminds me of when I was a kid. My, my older brother would always do these things where he'd, t- he'd tell everyone else, like, if you earn an opportunity to compete with me, I'll let you play me in the video game. It'll be like the championship match. <laughs> and, and he never defined what it meant to earn it. And he just make you do, do a bunch of stuff. And he'd be like, nah, I don't think that earns a championship match. And he would just pull the strings. I think that's what Calvin's doing. Well, next episode, we'll have some, some, some babes on. <laughs> and we'll see if that's a good step in the right direction. No promises. Oh, oh, there was one other thing that happened the last couple of weeks that I thought was hilarious. Somebody shared a video that, you know, professes or, or shares the theory that Adam Back is, is Satoshi. And the video is actually really interesting. It has a couple of, of interesting things that I don't think I'd seen before. Um, and it's got, it makes an interesting argument. But the funniest thing is that immediately when it came out, Adam Back goes on to Twitter to be like, hey guys, have you seen that video that claims I'm Satoshi? It's really, really compelling, but it's not true. And then everybody's like, yeah, we believe you, Adam. And he's like, no, no, no. I don't think <laughs> you, you don't understand. understand. <laughs> I don't think you understand how compelling it is. You would not be crazy to think it was true, but it's not. Yeah, okay, Adam, we believe you. No, 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 no. You would be an idiot to not assume I'm Satoshi based on how similar we are. It's almost unbelievable, even though it's not true. Like, the dude really wants you to think he's Satoshi. It, yeah, at one point he was like, it really goes a lot deeper than that. And then he goes into like <laughs> explaining a bunch of information that the video didn't even mention. <laughs> he's like, I, I really could be Satoshi. <laughs> but don't bother looking it up because I'm not. It's like that time my friend Paige was in this TV show 
and he's playing a character that's sick. And so I'm sitting next to him as we're watching him on TV and he goes, hey, dog, you don't know how dope my acting really was. He goes, I was sick on that day as a person. And he says, I was sick playing an actor who wasn't really sick doing a character that was sick. He's like, so the way that my character was sick is different from how I was sick as a person. It's like three levels of sickness. That's what Adam <laughs> Back is doing. He's like, he's like, I'm not really Satoshi, but man, if you really understood the stuff you don't understand, <laughs> you really think I was Satoshi. Oh, so uh, let, let's jump right in with, with Daniel. We got, we got a lot of stuff we want to get into, but I, I just want to start because I don't think I've ever heard you share or I've never seen Two questions. How did you first get into Bitcoin? And then what was your process of, like, when did you realize that big blocks were the way to go? Oh, well, uh, I'll take the second question first. And uh, I mean, I, I always thought that uh, a limited block size was nonsense. And uh, there is a, a tweet from 2014 that's on my profile right now because somebody retweeted it where I, I say, yeah. oh, okay, great. Well, thanks. Yeah. And uh, so I have, I, it was always my understanding that Bitcoin would scale with bigger blocks. And uh, it was also always my understanding that um, bigger blocks is the only thing that would work. And this is based on an article by uh, Oleg Andreev that I like called uh, Proof of Work is the Only Solution to the Byzantine General's Problem. And so when, when we have a solution to the Byzantine General's Problem, then what we get is capitalism because everybody can act independently and yet they, their actions were, will all be uh, harmonious with one another. Um, and that's kind of what, what the Byzantine general's problem means is that the, the system as a whole is able to survive even with, with many independent act, actors. And proof of work means we use big blocks. Uh, um, using some kind of alternate system that's not not based on uh, proof of work means that people are going to interfere with one another. So first, first question is, uh, I, I was actually introduced to Bitcoin by Ross Ulbricht when he was inventing the Silk Road. And uh, I was at an event called Three Day Startup. Um, uh, where a bunch of young people were being introduced to startup culture. They were being inducted into startup culture, I should say. And the idea is we were all going to try to figure out startups to start over the weekend and just throw together a bunch of business ideas. And uh, so uh, Ross Ulbricht was there and his business idea that he presented was the Silk Road, but he didn't tell people that uh, it was going to be an illegal drug market. He said that it was just going to be a, a market with Bitcoin and with, um, wh where the business was being an escrow service. I, and uh, 
he told me a little bit about Bitcoin, but he wasn't able to answer my economic questions about it. So, um, so I, I thought that the idea wasn't going to work. And the reason was at the time, Bitcoin didn't have a market and it didn't have a price. And so based on my understanding of Austrian economics, I said that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be able to become money because according to the regression theorem in Austrian economics, uh, a, a good that is going to become money must initially have a value that makes people want to acquire it before it can be used as money at all. And to me, it appeared that Bitcoin did not have that. So, so I said it wasn't going to work. And then later, uh, I noticed, well, but I kept an eye on Bitcoin um, just in case. And later, I noticed that it did have a price. So I didn't quite understand uh, how that had happened. But to me, that meant that my objection to Bitcoin had been met. So, uh, so I realized that I needed to take a closer look. And I, this was during the 2011 mania. And uh, my thinking was, well, so in Man, Economy, and State, uh, Rothbard says that a new money cannot take over and displace a, an established form of money. Um, and to me, it looked like Bitcoin was, uh, uh, was uh, not doing what Rothbard said. To, to me, it looked like Bitcoin was, was growing. And so what I thought was that if as the Bitcoin economy grows, Bitcoin becomes better money. So the, if it can compete with the dollar when it's a tiny economy, it competes even better when it's a big economy. So I decided I had better get some immediately because uh, it's only going to become more competitive as time goes on. And uh, I think that um, Bitcoin uh, in general um, massively increases the um, the value of uh, of understanding the economy, and because of the um, the speed at which information travels, uh, it Bitcoin increases the speed at at which information travels. So it increases the degree to which people can benefit by being ahead of each other. Uh, so time, time is compressed in Bitcoin. And uh, this is uh, something that, uh, that I understood early on because I was aware of the role of time in Austrian economics. What, why, is, why is time compressed in Bitcoin? Because of the fixed supply. Um, because there's a, uh, a greater benefit to uh, savings in Bitcoin uh, and 
because um, there's this need for miners to retrieve the latest block as fast as possible, um, there's this uh, this corresponding uh, um, uh, it it that it it ensures that information travels quickly. So any information that's relevant to price needs to move around really fast because everybody wants to know the latest information quickly um, because Bitcoin reacts so strongly to this information. Um, so uh, um, so people... Can I, can I jump on in, in here? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I know this is a bit... Going back to something you said earlier about the regression theorem, I just want to head on again as an economic point. I want to make a sociological point and then an economic point. So... It's interesting you say that you had this early um, skepticism because of the regression theorem. I remember way back in the early days before I paid too much attention. Um, this was probably, yeah, like 2011 or so. There, were, there was a, a big group of people who considered themselves partial to the Austrian School of Economics who were making the argument that Bitcoin couldn't be money um, because of the reg regression theorem. This was even after it had already established a market price. Yeah, I mean, that's and, totally ridiculous. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, yeah, I remember that happening. And if Bitcoin already has a price, then it can become money. It, exactly. So, so the, the, the regression theorem was distorted to become a litmus test to say, can this be money? Well, uh, if, it, if it theoretically might violate the regression theorem, it means it can't be money, even if it already has a price. It, but it's, I, like the, uh, it's like the economists arguing <laughs> that lighthouses can't be provided privately because they can't think of a way that yeah. it could be an outside their window. There's literally a privately provided. I remember Jeff, Jeff Tucker and I had a debate about this with some other guys that Jeff was trying to prove that it satisfied the theorem. And I'm like, but it has a price. It already has a price. Well, so yeah, I mean, if, if you think that, yeah, I mean, if you have this problem with the regression theorem, you're just a dogmatist and you don't know how to think like a scientist at all. Well, so, yeah. so let, let, let me ask you on that, on that point. So I remember having some of these debates with people, um, even though I wasn't like sold on Bitcoin, I was thinking, well, I don't think this is a correct application of the regression theorem. Couldn't it be that uh, the simplest resolution to the regression uh, theorem is that Bitcoin or any other good really could gain value by being a collectible? I mean, the most trivial thing, it seems to me that the regression theorem is like a description of how monies might emerge rather than a litmus test of whether they whether or not whether or not they could emerge right and so my thinking was um when i saw that bitcoin had developed a price my conclusion was that i had failed to understand the initial reason to acquire bitcoin so i didn't think that the regression theorem was wrong uh, what I thought was that I had failed to apply it correctly in the real world. So if Bitcoin had a price, then there must have been some initial reason to acquire it. And I just didn't know what it was. So I tried to learn as much about how Bitcoin worked as possible, starting from that point. And so now I have an answer for, for Bitcoin's initial uh, value. And what, what I think it is has to do with proof of work. And so there's a very important book called The Handicap Principle by Zahavi, which 
is, and the ideas in this book are not understood by Austrian economists currently, but they need to understand. I, I got I to throw in a quick caveat to that because they are understood by very well by a particular kind of neo-Austrian school out of George Mason University. I would point to Peter Leeson's work in particular. He's a, he's a big Misesian, but he's done a lot of work on signaling theory in a lot of applications that fulfills, I think, many of the handicap uh, principles criteria. And, and I read that book about a year and a half ago because I heard you mention it, by the way, and it was well worth it. Okay. Well, anyway, the, the handicap principle needs to be incorporated into the broader Austrian theory. And this idea explains Bitcoin's initial value. So what the handicap principle, well, handicap principle was originally uh, in, uh, proposed by a biologist to explain animal communication, especially in uh, sexual selection. At least that's the most obvious application, but it really has applications for all kinds of different things. So it has applications for like predator-prey communication in, in both directions. Um, and it has applications for, well, anyway, let me explain how it works. Uh, what the principle says is that the only uh, reliable signal that can be transmitted over an adversarial connection, in other words, one in which uh, the signaler can potentially benefit from deception is one that demonstrates opportunity cost. So um, um, you need a signal that the recipient can easily verify to, to have been costly to produce. So that's kind of why I, I talk about antlers a lot and I talk about the peacock's tail those are both applications. So, um, to, so, and of course, there's many, many animals that, uh, that have um, uh, uh, impressive signals to one another. Um, well, so uh, the, reason, the reason it works is that if the signal is costly, then then you can't use it very much. You can't, uh, there's a limit to how much you can use the signal. And um, you have to uh, limit your use of the signal to uh, cases where um, it's, it's actually likely to be, uh, uh, where it's likely that the, um, the receiver is going to accept your offer or is going to want want what you're offering so you the 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 uh the signaler has to figure out what uh what other animals are actually interested in they and they have to limit the use of the signal to other animals that actually would be interested in so the recipients of the signal can treat it like it's honest um, on average it's not honest a hundred you know perfectly but on average the value of uh, the the uh, on average the recipient will will gain by paying more attention to messages that demonstrate more opportunity cost and um, 
Uh, in Bitcoin, we have hash power. And hash power is a costly signal because you can verify cryptographically that uh, energy was spent. So um, energy, uh, so I think that proof of work is like antlers for ideas. And you can what, use- What were those earliest Bitcoiners trying to signal by expending that energy? And well, to whom? The, first, the first Bitcoiner was signaling that he was spending energy to acquire Bitcoins. And um, we don't know why he was doing that just from looking at the blockchain itself. But what we do know is that if we had Bitcoins and we offered him a better rate, we could get him to do work for us. So, because we know he's spending energy to get the initial Bitcoins. So, if we acquire some, we can pay him and offer him something better than what he's already getting, and then we can get him to do something for so, us. So the, the visibility of the cost, the opportunity cost, creates a market because now you have a price that you can underbid and you know that, there's a, you know that he values it to that extent. Right. Uh, so uh, just on, on that point, that is one uh, explanation perhaps for, the, for how there's an answer to the regression theorem, but couldn't there just be a simpler one? Uh, well, couldn't there be one of two, actually? One is that Bitcoin might have gained its initial value because people viewed it as a collectible. They just think, hey, this is a novelty item. I like having this novelty item that initially gives it price and therefore regression theorem satisfied. And the other would be even like, like a recursive where people think to themselves, well, this might be used as future money just because it's the first thing that seems to be created by the marketplace to be money because it's got all these other properties. So maybe the, the, ex, the mere expectation that other people might value it as money could be sufficient to give it an initial value. Um, well, I, I disagree with those, or I should say neither of those work without the handicap theory. And, and it's, it's hash power that causes people to act together. So if, if we're just talking about a, uh, a digital good that doesn't have uh, hash power, there, there isn't, there isn't a, a reason for people to be coordinated as they uh, acquire this initial good. So I think that there, there isn't a very good reason for people to um, believe that other people are acquiring this good as they're acquiring it. Now, th that, that would be... That would explain how you know, Bitcoin might have a low market value, but you could imagine that even among a small group of individuals who view it just purely as a collectible, as a novelty item, and they want to own it, that they amongst themselves could value it to give it and trade it amongst themselves at you know, a, a penny a, a unit. Yeah, but then they have to know each other in order to know that they, they value it. So Bitcoin, we can have with Bitcoin, we can have that without people uh, knowing each other. So I think, I think uh, if I'm hearing correctly, because it's a digital good, if, if I just made up, you know, whatever, Isaac Bucks, and you could just type in a, you know, a, C, a string of characters as an Isaac Buck or whatever, even if you wanted those, the fact that they're essentially costless to, to reproduce means that there's no there's no urgency, there's no need to go obtain them. But the fact that you've created 
scarcity around a digital good by by making it costly to create to mine. Um, now that means it's costly to obtain, and you know that it has this fixed limit. You need that element of it. That's that's why other digital goods don't have the because they lack the the scarcity. But it, I mean, it wasn't really expensive, and it, it was like running your laptop essentially. For free, you could create a lot of these coins at the beginning. It's not like you were signaling you were putting a huge investment in. But yeah, you, know, you, you don't you need know that others can't create them beyond the twenty-one million limit. That there is an ultimate cap, but, and that, but, and that it but gets that's not clear over time. But that's not a necessity to value a digital good, right? No, but so I it's think like you can still have value that's being traded to acquire a collectible, even if. Uh, it it can be printed up arbitrarily and we're just trusting Isaac that he doesn't print up more Isaac. Well, like if there's an infinite supply and you can create them yourself for almost no cost indefinitely, then there's not really a market. Well, but what I'm saying is the the regression theorem, I think it's really does get extended way farther beyond uh, its, its, its ability here because the only thing we're trying to do is trying to explain how is it that any Bitcoins got any value in the market whatsoever? Why and did the first ha- person pay any yeah, amount of money yeah, to it, obtain a Bitcoin? It, it might have been five people that were in some club that found this collectible. Even if the properties of the good aren't desirable, you can still have an initial value. And then once it has any initial value, even if it's traded among five people, suddenly now you could have a larger market develop if it's got better um, properties and more people are going to desire it. Yeah. I agree. Sustained. (laughs) (laughs) Next topic. (laughs) Um, Okay. So uh, you, you kind of, from a very economic analysis vantage point, kind of figured out that there's something here. And once you were satisfied that there's actually a real market for it, you got in. Now, when you were working with, because it seems like you, you, it seems like the idea of scaling with larger blocks was just totally natural to you, but you work kind of closely with, if I recall, some of the guys who are like hardcore small black guys now, like Maxis or whatever from the Nakamoto Institute. When, when was the point where like a lot of your friends in Bitcoin started to change their mind about block size? Or did they always think small blocks and you just assumed that they, that they thought the same thing you did? Like what happened there? Well, they're narcissists and they can be manipulated by popularity. Um, before, uh, before we started the, um, the Nakamoto Institute, um, we had a, uh, an economics discussion group at UT where we talked about um, the classics of Austrian economics and we went through all of the Austrian economics material. And when we had that, we had uh, reasonable discussions where uh, people uh, would, you know, make arguments about things and, you know, think about what, uh, what other people said. And, um, excuse me. And usually, um, um, uh, Usually, uh, people would, uh, I I would say usually people listen to me a lot because I had the best arguments. And, uh, when, um, when my, my former friends from, uh, the Nakamoto Institute 
became popular, they, they stopped listening to anything that I said. And um, uh, they, they became um, uh, tools of the, the BTC um, uh, uh, consensus. So they, um, they only wanted to uh, go along with the core developers and uh, they wanted to treat them like they were superior, which is something that I never believed because to me, Bitcoin is about economics and somebody who understands economics knows more about Bitcoin than someone who can program. And um, so, um, and they, uh, they used things that I had written to support their narrative, but were not interested in listening to me explain how they were misinterpreting them. So, for example, um, one thing that I tried to teach people early on in Bitcoin is that uh, savings is the primary function of money. Um, so people use this to support the idea that Bitcoin doesn't need payments, which, I mean, that's so no, you, idiotic. Save it, you save it so that you can not be able to use it in the future. See, that's how saving. Okay, works. wait now <laughs> using saving is using. So when you earn Bitcoin, that's when you start using it. And when you spend Bitcoin, that's when you're done using it. Spending isn't using, holding is using. Um, I like that. But if you can't spend, then there's no point in holding. Uh, like the, the point, the value of savings is, well, people say like money for a rainy day. Well, what does that mean? That means that when new information comes in, when something happens, you're ready to move. But if you can't spend it, then you're not ready to move. And we're sort of seeing that now. Uh, the mempool is, uh, has been getting worse and worse the last few days. And uh, so if you have BTC and you receive new information, that BTC does not make you any better off right now because you can't act quickly with it. You but, know, that, that's one thing that is dramatically underappreciated, I think, by, by holders is like, even if you promised me, hey, here's, a, here's a, a place you can put money, you can use money, and it's going to give you a 10% annual return, a 30% annual return. Uh, but even if you could guarantee me that return, but when you decide you want to spend it, you may or may not be able to access it in one minute, one day, one week. And it may or may not cost you a dollar, a thousand dollars. The uncertainty about the access to those funds is like a humongous component. Even if it's earning great return, if I don't know how quickly I can use it, it dramatically reduces the value. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole, yeah, the value of savings is you're first in line. That money is the, the most liquid good. That means when you have it, you're first in line to do whatever you want. And that's not how BTC works. Yeah, it turns yeah, the liquid it, into a solid. It felt, it felt like, <laughs> right. um, but, then you, but then you use the liquid network on top of the solid. <laughs> exactly. to, yeah. 
It felt like at the time that you were responding to, because um, a lot of your articles do talk about hoarding Bitcoin, but it yes. felt like at the time you were responding to the the other fallacy, which is that spending will stimulate the Bitcoin economy or something right, like that. Right, exactly. And that so was a common thing yeah. at the time in particular. Yeah. Like, let's support biz- Bitcoin businesses by spending our Bitcoin. Yeah, but that doesn't, which is bullshit. You, yeah, it's also a terrible it. signal, right? Well, because yeah. you're signaling to the market, I want to dispose of this money. Right? I completely, I completely yeah. disagree with that idea. I think that's incorrect. I think especially when you're bootstrapping, uh, a new money that can be, if, if the idea is saving for future spending, you have to demonstrate to businesses and to other individuals and participants in the market that that good is uh, acceptable, that you can receive it for payment. If there's nobody that will accept it, then it's not going to be something you want to spend well, it. It's not about accepting it. It's about, it's about inducing people to spend it. So if, if you, well, if Bitcoin is better money, you have to work harder in order yeah. to earn it. That's all there is to it. So but, a but Bitcoin business must provide better than a fiat business. Yeah, it's, yeah they, have, they have to work harder to convince you to part with your money. That's, that's just a fact of, of reality, given that we have a better money. Why would there be a separation between Bitcoin businesses and other businesses? If you want it to be uh, used well, as money, you, it has to be used in... No, in, because, because a business that's entering the market early and trying to get convince you to give them their bit, your Bitcoin, if you, if you think your Bitcoin is going to be more valuable in the future, they have to work harder to get your Bitcoin than they yeah, do I to mean, get your fiat. The, the, the separation is what kind of money do you want to earn? If you're indifferent between Bitcoin and fiat, you don't understand it. Well, however, this is, I think this way of thinking implies that Bitcoin has already demonstrated that it is superior money in a market. If you're talking about uh, a, a time where not a lot of people are accepting it in commerce, a lot of, not a lot of people are saving in it, then it seems to me quite obvious that you need to push merchant adoption. You need to push... Uh, 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 rewarding the companies that are accepting it with a good user experience and say, hey, this actually works. Maybe I should use this um, to, as payments more often. I mean, capital, if you're providing capital. a better business model, if, if I mean, otherwise you're, you're rewarding inefficient companies. You right. Know, like, like, yeah. If a company, capital. they have to provide a better service. If they're not providing a better service, you're actually exchanging to them uh, you're giving them money for a less efficient service so that you can have less money later on. I mean, I, I don't. Yeah. The, 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 capital, but, capital markets are a future prediction contest and a business that doesn't want to work harder to earn bitcoins isn't trying to win the future prediction. What, what, what do you mean? They're not trying. That's they're not well, Bitcoin like, only businesses. They're the <laughs> regular businesses that are accepting a new payment mechanism because their customers are demanding it, but they're curious about it. And in the, the process, it makes the value of that currency that much more valuable because it's demonstrated that it's, it's more useful. No, you the, can the, actually get rid of it. What, what makes Bitcoin more valuable in terms of price is more people who want to save in Bitcoin. And a way of acquiring Bitcoin is running but, but, a business. But the and reason that you sp- it. save in Bitcoin is because you think you can eventually spend Bitcoin. Yeah, in the future. But the reason, yeah. some, and the reason someone would want to accept Bitcoin as a payment option is because people want to save it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but the but but nobody look if, if Bitcoin was a technology that was invented, 
and uh, it gained no merchant uh, adoption. It, regular people are not going to want to acquire this thing to save in if they can never spend it. So for some period of time, That's, you have to- No, remember, yeah. savings is the primary function of money. So what people will do is they'll save in Bitcoin, and if there aren't businesses that are accepting it, they'll just start providing services to one another for Bitcoin. So it's, it's the desire to save that, that makes people want to earn. And people who don't want to earn Bitcoins don't they don't know what they should be saving in i i just i don't think that's i don't think that's correct at all I, I think that might be true for a very small amount of people that think to themselves here's this thing that was created i'm going to put my money in it and save it even though it's not i can't actually use it as a currency i mean you know? it's kind Sa of like saving a is using saving is using you're using it as a currency if but, you're the, saving. but the function of saving is Holding it for, for, for when future can, exchange, for future right. exchange. And there has so, to be a which, point at which you, you know, can exchange you know it in that the future. Are, you know that there are other savings. You know that there are other savers because of hash power. So you can find them, and then they will want to accept Bitcoin. Yeah, but, but yeah, so, you're so talking Steve, about a tiny you, little group. You, yeah, well, it depends on the ex like what the extent of that market is, but you just need to know that there is a market for it. So like if you have a bunch of, you know, whatever, vintage Michael Jordan sneakers, you can, you, you will want to save those or many people do. Um, not because they think that Walmart will accept them in five years in exchange for, you know, a ladder or a sandwich, but because they know there is someone who will accept them in exchange for something else that they value because there is a market, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a market for the specific consumer good that you need, but you need a market. And the question is, I think that you guys are getting at, how, what is the extent of that market necessary to achieve a, a scale beyond a collector's item, beyond the market for vintage sneakers? So I, I think the point about, you know, merchants and stuff is, is refuted by the fact that there actually, there haven't really been a whole lot of successful Bitcoin businesses that are just accepting Bitcoin as the primary form of payment and being profitable. Why, why would they need to accept it as a primary form of payment? It's just well, another form of payment that's easier than credit cards for certain use cases. Well, but if it's actually easier right. and actually a better form it, for it, that it, use case. Because otherwise Gresh Gresham's law kicks in. It, and why it would was. You, if you can pay with either form of money, you're going to pay with the one that you value less for saving. And that's going to be dollars. So unless yeah, the, the business itself, if paying with Bitcoin gets you something you can only get by paying with Bitcoin, a novel use case, a lower fee, or some other form of value add, there's no real reason to do it. So there are, before the blocks became full, Bitcoin was having success. I mean, BitPay processed like a billion dollars worth of transactions, or maybe even more before the uh, Weren't blocks most of those full. like remittances and stuff like that incorporated That was a use case that you can't do. That wasn't like small merchant payments, was it? No, was I don't think like, it was. Like Shopify stores? Yeah, that, just, that, was, that was mainstream uh uh, merchants getting paid by regular customers in Bitcoin. I don't think they did. Merch I, I've never seen any, any evidence uh, bit, 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 You got to look at the statistics that no, BitPay I mean, was putting. I, I, no, I remember I, looking. I, it seemed like it was mostly like cross-border like remittances. And yeah, stuff. like BitPay's I, revenue as of like a year ago was like almost exclusively from 
helping companies do international money. Now, transfers. yeah, now after the blocks became full, they 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 even lost customers. Not only did that was a huge hit for the whole Bitcoin economy, but they actually lost. Yeah, well, but I, I don't know, know how that's even relevant to what we're talking about. They've had guys, three years up, to get up, him back with. I, I think Kravitz is, is pulled up his video game. I think we lost him. He's gone. We, he's peggling again. We got him to peggle. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. But no, the if if somebody's going to give me a Bitcoin discount, then if if somebody says we take dollars or bitcoins, I'll pay with dollars. That's that's. So I, I, I understand that. Word. <laughs> what I'm saying is, if it's the case that everybody is doing that, uh, you are not going to be able to eventually spend your. Bitcoin. The, in order to, to justifiably think to yourself, oh, I'm going to save my money in this, you have to think that at a future time you can spend it. And if you the just only need to people know that, that, that somebody the, else is if, willing to buy it, there just but, needs but, to be but, a, but, a predictive but, market price. Why would we think that? It, I mean, even if it's the case that there's 15 people who are Bitcoin enthusiasts, it's like, oh, well, I know I can eventually cash out to those 15 people who are Bitcoin enthusiasts. Why would we think that would make a superior money to one that's at, one where not only can you save in it, but you also can go around and spend it all the time and you have confidence that in the future, you're not going to be selling to 15 enthusiasts. It's a, com it's a comparative level of confidence. Like you never have absolute confidence that the US dollar will be uh, accepted uh, or at any given exchange rate by everybody, but you have a high degree of confidence. And you can judge you a more less people. high degree of confidence that Bitcoin will be accepted at a future date for the same or, or more. But that the, it's a relative guess. It's a bet on what people will value in the future. But, and as long as there's enough of a market, that's, you know. It's, the, the thing is, it's, it's your responsibility to think ahead. It's, it's your responsibility to imagine the future state. And that's, that's how, um, that's, that's, that's how capital markets work. So, so um, it, it, do you imagine in a future state wait, 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 you'll be now, able to wait, wait, well, finish? This, okay. if, if He's going to start peggling if you don't let him finish, Dan. Well, <laughs> if, if somebody doesn't understand that a fixed supply money is better for savings and they don't predict that future and they just say, I'm, I'm indifferent to which form of money that I'm going to accept, they're not, they're not predicting the future. So the people that I like are the ones who are, who are predicting the future. Those are the ones who make the future happen. So, Those so are the, the people that I'm interested in. In, in your future prediction, do you imagine regular acceptance of Bitcoin in everyday commercial transactions? Yeah. Okay, so why, why, I mean, do you think that's a necessary part of? Yeah, right. Uh, okay, what, so, so I'm the missing way, something. The reason, yeah. the reason that people want to earn Bitcoins is because they want to save in Bitcoins. So okay. if you don't, but the reason want they want to save, to save in Bitcoins is because they think they'll be able to spend them in the future, which we've established. Yeah, right. Is, but if so, so we have to go. Well, merchant merchant adoption is not the only. Think that, if you don't think that Bitcoin is going to be spendable in the future, 
then I'm not going to give you any now. Uh, okay, I understand that. But the, there's only one way to go from a state of not having general acceptance as a medium of exchange and having general acceptance. And that's through the important and necessary process of gaining merchant acceptance. In fact, no, that is no, a necessary. Why is that the, no, why is that the only way? That's not true at all. It's literally necessary. You are so no. wrong, Steve. That, that's, that, might be the final, that might be the final outcome, the final result of a series Okay. Oh, oh, okay. But, but be- the only way to get there is by going through a necessary discrete step-by-step yeah, process people, of more people, people which should be in- celebrated, which is people, a good thing. Well, you should do that yeah, on their own. Okay. Yeah. Once they figure out that Bitcoin is better for savings, then they're going to want to start. Earning. And what a better way to demonstrate to people that Bitcoin is better for savings than to say you can save in it. And look, you look out in the world and it is accepted by all of these places. It gains a massive amount of legitimacy, which Here's is important. I yeah. I mean, Here's I, I don't, I mean, Bitcoin never needs to have legitimacy. That's your. <laughs> what do you mean it doesn't need to have legitimacy? Of course, it, 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 it needs to be okay, money. Have you, that, have you read Ayn Rand? Yeah. Okay. So Bitcoin. Well, I mean, not not the entirety of her work, but yes. Well, yeah. No, have you, you read? You sell out. <laughs> I know. The way the way that things work in Ayn Rand novels is <laughs> the main character spends the entire novel with everybody shitting on him and saying that nothing he's doing is ever going to work and nobody believes in anything. And then finally at the end, everybody realizes that everything they've been doing has been stupid except him. And then they have no choice but to go along with his plan. That's how it works in Bitcoin. And so we start out with the highest IQ people saving in Bitcoin. And that makes that makes the dollar economy slightly worse relative to the bitcoin economy because they're losing they're losing all of their their atlases right then the next level of iq realizes who they need to be allied with so they join in with the top <laughs> iq people then we just go through that process again and again until finally all the lowest iq people join the bitcoin economy too I think that's completely wrong. Uh, I, I think IQ is greatly overrated. And I think, in fact, having a high IQ oftentimes disposes I, people to be kind Steve, of retarded. A little bit, Steve, you're, that's not, but that's not really the point. I, no, 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 no. I don't think Daniel no, literally no. means IQ. I'm not literally. Of course, of course. People who can best predict the future. Economic force predictors. No, okay. There's a huge difference between people who are going to have, who are the most competent actors in the marketplace and those individuals who are currently or presently valuing Bitcoin as a potential savings mechanism. It's like there is an enormous difference between uh, thinking that Bitcoin might be a good money and actually being like a competent atlas in the marketplace. And well, in I fact, dis- the, the- I disagree with that. I think that the people who think that Bitcoin is good money are the atlases. Oh, oh, so they're, I, the I, ones I, who, they're the ones who understand the most important thing I, I, in the market. I understand that you believe that. I believe that you believe that. However, I have seen plenty of people who otherwise have had financial success, uh, who probably have high IQs, who are heavily invested in BTC, 
because they think that's going to be the project <laughs> that is going to gain widespread uh, so, adoption okay, so in the future. And they're completely... But, Steve, but that's Steve what's are. great about Bitcoin is yeah. there's a whole new... Uh, there's a whole new IQ level right. that you have to pass now. <laughs> Steve, okay. Steve, I think Daniel's actually agreeing with, with your point that this is sort of the, the humility that Hayek talks about that you, you have to have in the market, that it's hard for people to accept that those who are really good at predicting certain things in the market may be idiots in a lot of other ways and vice versa. And so here's this new thing just because you are really phenomenal at building businesses uh, on the internet or whatever, doesn't mean you are the most correct about this particular thing. And you may be an idiot in other ways and actually be the most correct about this. And it may even be for the wrong reasons, but like it's a, it's a, it's a particular, it's yeah. a specialized type of being correct. So here's what I've seen. Uh, it is the case that the writing was on the wall for BTC for a long time. Uh, for various reasons, it, it seemed pretty clear. The market has, uh, at least in the short run, decide, uh, decided that, that BTC has a much, much, much greater uh, value than the combined uh, potential value of BSV and BCH, a big block just, Bitcoin. Every time you wait, say wait. the word BTC, Daniel just cracks up. <laughs> because, no, I just but, think it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, so but, many people but, think that yeah. BTC is good. <laughs> no, I know, it is. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with him? Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was a, hey, we yes. shouldn't debate though. I, I want to move on to like other wait, questions. No, no, too, no, 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 no. Hey, hey, hang on. Wait, let's let, I got to finish. Okay. okay. It seems completely reasonable <laughs> to me to believe that in the future, um, there will be a small group of, of highly intelligent, correct theorists who understand that big block Bitcoin is in, could be a superior form of money and it never gains any real world traction because that group of people who understands it is extraordinarily small and it requires collaborating with uh, the, the rest of the marketplace in order to make, make a successful money. And I already have, we have concrete real world experience of superior technology based on superior economics, superior incentives failing because the, the, the masses are the people that you need are, and they are in fact that stupid. And it's not just the masses. I mean, there are other otherwise intelligent people in crypto projects that, that are, uh, are having more success than the minority of big block Bitcoin. And I see no reason okay. to, to believe that that is, is it's somehow a guarantee right. that no, the people- Success <laughs> is not guaranteed, okay? That I, I believe in success, but you're right. <laughs> success is not guaranteed but I disagree that we need the masses, okay? The masses need us. That's, <laughs> that's how it really works. I love that. Yeah, well, I, I, okay, that might be true, but I don't think that the way you get the masses is by buying the, uh, uh, the coin and then holding onto it. Like, I, I well, think the no, way I mean, actually no, that- No, you're right. No, you need to do a lot more than that to make Bitcoin successful. Okay. Uh, well, I agree, but I guess what I would say that what you need to do and, and what, the, what a money needs to do is gain more mainstream adoption and traction so that the masses are coming along. I don't think sitting, you know, sitting and saying, ah, we have the best money is the way that it, uh, is not a good Adding method a for actually winning. Adding a cash widget on your site does almost nothing for <laughs> adoption. No. I mean, that's why it's, we've already had, we've already been through this. We have Bitcoin Th cash. That's 
Daniel can vouch for me. Okay. Daniel was in this for a long time. Daniel like seen a lot. Okay. I've seen all this Daniel. too. No, no, no. Da- you remember Daniel when there was no merchant acceptance. They're trying yeah. to out OG us, okay. Eric. Okay. Do, do you think, yeah, that's right. Uh, you guys, you guys just listen. No, you, you remember when there was no merchant acceptance. Would you say that the, the pitch or the success of Bitcoin as a superior form of money improved when there was mainstream adoption, when Microsoft uh, came on board, when you had, when uh, it was like, hey, you can actually spend this in places, books were written, there were articles, it was on the mainstream news. Do you think that made Bitcoin better money? Um, yeah, and it was a horrible thing for Bitcoin when fees went up and all of those businesses left. But the, the way that Bitcoin succeeds is Bitcoiners need to serve each other. So people who believe in, in saving in Bitcoin need to provide services for other people who have Bitcoin. And that will result in specialization because people need to figure out what they're best at. What is their, uh, what is their, um, their optimal uh, service that they can provide to other Bitcoiners? That's, that will, that's what makes people want to join is that there is a, a good economy in Bitcoin. So the way I see us uh, achieving success is by being better at serving each other than dollar profit seekers are at serving people with dollars. I just I, I think that is a not a strategy for success. I, I think the uh, the the other approach of trying to blur the lines between fiat and crypto and by using it in commerce, I think that's uh, definitely the way to go. Because I lived through it, and it, it was a completely different conversation when you're so talking I'm, about Bitcoin prior to any acceptance versus once it once it gained legitimacy, which I think is a I'm critical with, feature. I'm with of Daniel money. here as a as a strategic point. And maybe this just appeals to you know what I've come to in, in life in general with philosophy and business as well. But the idea of let's go out and tell people to change their behavior because it's some kind of cause. We're on some kind of mission and we need like bumper stickers and we need persuasion campaigns to try to convince them to change their behavior in this manner and join us. That evangelistic approach, it's the Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on doors. You know, have you heard of Bitcoin? Will you please accept Bitcoin, please? I think that is so inferior to find your niche market who knows what's going on. You get together and you say, look, we know that. I mean, this is how we built practice. But, but we didn't go trying to worked. convince people. We didn't go trying to convince people who, who were happy with college that they should not go to college and do practice. We went and found people who already agreed with us and said, hey, you're right. We already got something. Let's make it better. And all of a sudden... You get it growing and all these people over here, right? This is crossing the chasm. This is like classic early adopter to to late stage adopter. These people over here say, what are they doing over there? They kind of have their own thing going and they seem to all really like it. And it's like slowly growing. And now I don't care about their cause or their ideology or anything else. I'm just curious. And it's like an actual real thing. Maybe I want to join now. But you get that by serving, as Daniel says, serving each other, other people who value Bitcoin. You serve your early customers who already agree with you on the problem and they're already looking for your solution and you don't go try to evangelize other people. That's how you build a great product that other people eventually want to come join. But that last part was the most important part. 
the other people when they're when they are ready and you already have the basics built like we already saw in but there's Bitcoin. No, you you start with who you have product market fit for there's no product market fit for those other but, people but how, then how growing. did we get how did we get from bitcoin btc to be from almost worthless to over $20,000 be, because By there was tricking enough- people <laughs> well, I mean, that's partly true. But, but the only reason that's true, though, is because the underlying technology broke. If, if Bitcoin, if BTC was a big block Bitcoin, it wouldn't have been a trick. Right. Right. Okay. So, so somehow the, 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 the process that a success looks like is you might start with the core, you start with the people you're serving people, you got this great technology. And then because the way you the place you have to end up in order to succeed is reaching the mass market, at some point you got to celebrate and encourage and grow that but mass I don't market. Think you even, I don't even think you need to sell them. They'll come to you yeah. when you have right. something too good to ignore. If you go out trying to convince them and they pop in and it's at all not great, then they'll never want to come back again. Fuck they'll come to you when your shit is too good to ignore. Right. Steve, I mean, Bitcoin Cash has merchant adoption, you know, I mean, like it's pretty trivial now to add Bitcoin Cash to any- From what I heard, all of Australia is on Bitcoin Cash. (laughs) You can can literally add any e-commerce store Bitcoin very easily, and a lot of stores now take it. They they take a whole basket of cryptocurrencies. It it shouldn't be mutually exclusive. So So this is the thing. There doesn't need to be any disharmony between the saving and the spending. I'm just saying that the whole point of the saving is the future spending, and so we should encourage both saving and spending. All right, so here we go. Well, I'm going to say I'm, I'm not going yeah. to I'm I'm not going to No, I mean, I'm going to encourage <laughs> spending by trying to earn more. So, I will encourage spending among people who want to pay me for what I'm offering. That's the only but, way that I'm going to encourage so spending. But that's so small scale. That's no, like, okay. that's, okay. no, that's what gonna, everyone should do. That's, that's, man, that's the correct Steve, we're gonna you're just here. I'm we're going to yeah. settle this. We're going we're gonna to put the money where the mouth is. Here's what we're going to do. Six-month experiment. No, we'll, do, we'll call it an 18-month because that's you always got to say 18 months, okay? Steve, you are going to buy a stack of 10,000 bumper stickers that say Bitcoin accepted. <laughs> I'm not making bumper and, and stickers. listen. And <laughs> all right, you are going right. to go out. And you are going to convince as many merchants as possible. You are going to pay them and beg them to put those stickers up and accept it. Daniel is going to build Boost Proof of Work, which I hope we'll talk about, over the next 18 months to try to serve people who are already interested in Bitcoin. At the end of 18 months, we will see who has been most successful based on whatever criteria I decide. TK, you had a question. <laughs> I, I, I would short my position on that. There's so many questions to ask. man. have you earned the right to... Uh, to compete with Isaac? I don't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> you clearly haven't earned the right. Yeah. Clearly no. The answer is no. <laughs> no, but what I was going to say is I, I got to hear more Quaywitz, man. We only have a little bit more time left, and I got to hear more of this brother. I truly think he's one of the most interesting, eccentric yeah. figures of our time, and he needs to be talking a lot more. Um, I have so many questions, and I know we all do. I, I'm, I'm going to dive in with one BTC question based on a, on a recent tweet. Um, you posted Brendan Lee's Streamanity video, the, the one about BTC chain death, um, where he spelled out a, a, a hypothetical scenario um, where we could witness the demise of BTC. And you said in your tweet, time to review this video. Hopefully, if you have BTC, you didn't split your UTXO so that you can watch this. 
why did you post that video? And what's your take on the, the probability of a BTC chain death scenario? Well, so there's lots of stuff in the chain. Well, first of all, uh, Fred, thanks for what you were saying earlier. And you're, you're one of my favorite people too. I like, uh, I like uh, listening to your, your stuff. And um, um, so in, um, in chain death, there's, there's lots of stuff in there. So um, I don't think there's, um, we need to think that things will play out exactly like Brendan Lee says. It's really kind of like a, a, a journey through the imagination. And that's kind of what people in BTC are missing is they're not thinking about uh, how things can go wrong. Because yeah. if you think about, um, in order to think about how to fail, you need to use your imagination because you need to think about scenarios that you haven't thought about yet. They don't want to do that, but it's really pretty easy to understand how BTC can fail. So in a, a high fee scenario, um, the, uh, high, as fees goes up, higher and higher fractions of UTXOs on BTC become unspendable because the fees are going to be bigger than the, uh, the value that's in the UTXOs. So as fees go up, well, and also the lightning channels have to be closed out because you, um, you need to stake some coins in the channel um, um, and the channel gets closed if the, those coins don't cover the fees uh, anymore. So, um, uh, so as fees goes up, go up, the, the system starts to fail and, um, and someone who, uh, had lots of Bitcoins and who, uh, wanted BTC to fail or who had lots of BTC, I should say, who had lots of BTC and wanted BTC could f to fail could easily create this, this scenario. Um, they could create a scenario where BTC is useless for as long a time as they wanted. And um, uh, eventually that would cause the price to crash um, uh, because ultimately the ultimately these prices do have to get they have to get back to the real reasons that the coins are good so people in BTC who think that they can just be day traders forever will eventually realize that they can't and they need to dig into their savings and um, in order to sustain themselves. And they're going to realize that they have, have trouble doing that and they're not going to value the coin as highly. Um, eventually, the, the value uh, has to, uh, the, the market value has to approach the real usefulness of of a thing and it can it can be off for a long time but 
eventually the uh, people who are uh, living living better will be able to afford more of what they want. And people who are doing stupid things will not be able to afford more of what they want. So the prices have to adjust. Um, so um, uh, anyway, uh, I, I think that the, the chain death video is uh, a good way of, of understanding a lot about what's wrong with BTC. And understanding it requires using your imagination to imagine a scenario that isn't current but could easily happen. Well, and this just has to do with um, uh, with security in general, right? Because if you're uh, in order to design a crypto system that is uh, functional, you need to think about every way that someone could try to break it and ensure that none of them work, which they're not. They're not doing on BTC. Yeah, I found they seem to have no concept of the idea of failure. Yeah. <laughs> which is, is it tended to me like a bad sign. Like what it, would losing that, look like? like and right no side of answer. history, you know? We're on the right side of his. It's inevitable. Speaking of failure, I, I love, Daniel, you had a sentence there that just tickled my funny bone. Usually people talk about imagination, like, you know, use your imagination, envision the future of what things could be and be creative. It's like they're reading Rebel. <laughs> you said something like, you know, <laughs> use your imagination to figure out how you might fail yeah well it's like oh that's the inspirational story imagination. like imagination <laughs> imagine <Yeah>. failure <laughs> well, imagination. yes well, so every failure but, scenario but BTC does they do have a solution <laughs> they have a solution to prevent failure from what i can see on reddit it's that you post to reddit and say guys stop being so selfish and trying to send transactions over bitcoin okay you're breaking it save it for only the most important people yeah. and that's, they were organizing bread lines on, on our <laughs> Bitcoin yesterday, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Um, Daniel, what do you what do you think about? Um, I have a, I have two questions, but what do you think about the likelihood that BTC would just raise its block size at some point if they realized that the problem was going to get this this catastrophic, or is it just like is that just out of the picture because they've already gone so far and, and they've already proven how how stupid they are? Well, uh, I think that. Um anyone in BTC with any common sense left will realize that it's a lot easier to just leave and join uh, BSV. And so, uh, I mean, it's not impossible for them to sort of fix things. Uh, there's a lot, but yeah. what I think will really happen is the the more sensible people will just leave. So what you'll end up with is just more craziness. Yeah. Uh, Second question. Oh, go ahead. That's right. Second question is I've been, I've been sharing some stuff and just talking to these guys a bit about, uh, about someone you've mentioned before on your videos, uh, Merchu Popescu. Oh, (laughs) Um, so, so, so Merchu strikes me as kind of like a crazy person. Yeah. Um, you know, like issuing death threats and like putting putting hits on people or something like that on his blog, um, among other things. You know, like seeming to be the guy who was one of the really early guys who was radically against any attempt to raise the block size whatsoever. 
Uh, can you yeah, explain I mean, this, I, this guy? Sure. I'll tell you what I know about him. So Mercer Papascu, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, was the original Bitcoin cult leader. And the current BTC cult is like a lower class mm-hmm. version <laughs> of what he started. No, I, his, I think you mean, you mean that literally, right? Yeah. You mean like, yeah, no, yeah, like his, a historical derivative of it. Yeah, no, but it's also like for the lower classes. Right. His, his cult was elitist. Yeah. And the people that he um, uh, assembled around him all believed that they were going to be the elite of Bitcoin. So he called himself um, like the Bitcoin Baron or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and he said that he had more money than anyone and that he could single handedly stop anything, you know, from, from happening in Bitcoin that he wanted to. Yeah. Well, that's not how it works. Um, <laughs> yeah. He, he, in order for the money to accomplish anything, it has to be worthwhile for other people to uh, acquire it. So you can't, um, you can't stop people from doing things that make the money more valuable. Yeah. Because uh, if, if you try, you're just making your own money less valuable. But any, anyway, uh, he, uh, he started this, this MPEC exchange thing, and he said that um, it's always 30 bitcoins <laughs> to get an account. <laughs> regardless of, of how expensive a Bitcoin becomes. And this was his way of ensuring that only the elite would be able to have an account on MPEG. And uh, he also believed that Bitcoin as a whole was going to be the elite of the world. So only the, uh, the, high, the highest top level people would be able to have bitcoins at all and so, bitcoin was not for the uh the plebeians um it was for the it was for the the upper class and he was actually banned on twitter because uh andreas antonopoulos said i hope that one day bitcoin will not be will be for like everybody you know not just the upper class and he said if that ever happens i will kill you with my bare hands <laughs> <laughs> and, and he got banned from Twitter. Okay, um, yeah. Well, <laughs> where, where did that guy go? Where is he now? Well, I think he's still blogging. You should check out his blog. It's called Trilemma. Uh, I don't remember the exact um, URL, but you'll know it when you find it because <laughs> it'll just be fucking crazy. <laughs> and, uh, his blog so, is really so funny. One, <laughs> There's one, some great stuff on there. But yeah, he's, he's nuts. One funny historical anecdote that I saw was um, from the one of those because the, he, he he retreated after getting banned to these like you know, devlogs or something like that where he sort of held high courts and um, there was a funny chat between him and, and Seifdin Amos where where he Seifdin sort of being indoctrinated into into Popescu's sort of ideology and and asking Popescu to give him comments on his his dissertation even, which I thought was, uh, was very, uh, very amusing. <laughs> and it explains a lot too, because Seifdin sort of acts like a lower tier version of the Pescu. Oh yes. my God. I mean, remember my video about the floppy man? That, that was the greatest. <laughs> we, we use that phrase around the house, me and my kids. We talk about being a floppy man because of your video. Well, th- great. Well, thanks. Well, yeah. And Seifdin is 
the epitome of the floppy man. What, what is the floppy man? Um, so do you remember the cartoon version of Beauty and the Beast from the 90s? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, you remember how Gaston has his sidekick, LeFou? Yeah, yeah, man? yeah. Well, it's really funny because they have a completely different art style and animation style, and it's almost like they're in different movies, like they're characters from different movies, because um, uh, uh, um, Gaston is kind of... Um, uh, um, a, a a caricature. Um, well, that that's anyway. He kind of is. He's sort of realistic. Um, whereas uh, LeFou is like um, like a cartoony kind of character, and so Gaston is not proportioned like a normal person, but he appears to have like joints and muscles and bones and things whereas lefou is like a <laughs> just a rubbery kind of person and they have this thing where gaston picks up lefou by his uh his uh the scruff of his neck and he talks to him like uh like he's like a pet or something <laughs> and this this depicts their relationship I, I i love how the movie does it because it it depicts this um the the cult leader cult member relationship in uh as as a cartoon like in their their actions so when gaston wants to talk to lefou lefou just goes limp and just <laughs> lets him pick him up and gaston says something to him and then lefou agrees with everything he says and uh so lefou okay. is the floppy man i love it and that's what people in BTC are who just go along with whatever the core developers say. Daniel, my, my favorite thing that you said about that in that video was you showed LeFou getting thrown against the wall incredibly violently and he's totally unaffected. <laughs> and you said he no longer even feels pain because he's so, he so identifies with the person he looks up to. That yeah. he doesn't have a sense of self sufficient to feel when he is actually being harmed. And then you showed when Jameson Lop said he was willing to hold all of his Bitcoins until they go to zero. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I, I, I've got a couple of questions. And one, the first one is uh, about this. So I don't know if you remember this, Daniel, but many years ago, probably... 2013 or something, maybe 2014, you and some, I, I, it was you and Michael Goldstein, it might've been another person, I don't remember, you visited us in Atlanta and we talked a little bit about Bitcoin and other stuff. And then this was before the falling out happened, whatever happened with some of those people who went in the core, the, on the core side. So when you're looking at the history of what has happened with the, with the core cult and all the many rubber men that are in it, do you do you look at this as there was a like at the high level people were intellectually mistaken about uh, the scalability of Bitcoin and the Lightning Network working like they actually thought there were really good arguments um, and they were just confused or do you look at this and say this was something that was orchestrated this was intentionally kind of a, a culty takeover that ended up working. Well, I think there's a little bit of both going on because uh, I think that there's people with all kinds of different motivations. Um, so 
not that I know him personally, but to me, Greg Maxwell seems like kind of a sociopath. Yeah. So <laughs> someone who would want to destroy a community um, deliberately and would want to understand the means of doing so. Uh, whereas Safe Dean is someone who is like a classic narcissist, as, as are many people in BTC. And a narcissist is kind of like someone who will believe anything. Um, a, a narcissist lacks self-insight and lacks self-reflection. And so cognitive biases are stronger with mm. narcissists. So like, I think that Safe Dean really believes mm -hmm. what he's saying, but I think that he's also someone who's much more easily manipulated. If you just, if you just uh, make him feel like you're raising him up higher in a hierarchy. You're stretching him saying, out. Yeah, right. For saying something, he'll, He'll believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's great analysis. But, but uh, so, so I wonder then, because it seems like the Bitcoin community, or BTC community especially, was extremely hierarchical. And I was very surprised when some of, the, uh, of people, I think you said you, you called them former friends, um, they went pretty hardcore into this BTC world. I'm, I wonder if actually the person at the top or the people at the top is Greg Maxwell individually, and maybe this Popescu guy as well, at least early on, I really do think those two people might be the, the cause or the, the, the apex of the cult that we see. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to see. I mean, it's hard to tell what's going on. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of insight into many of these people, um, but I, I will say to me, I, Adam Back appears to really believe what he says, and I see him as a, another narcissistic kind of person. Yeah, um, I, I didn't even see people were sharing around the this video of the whole Adam Back Satoshi thing. I honestly I couldn't bring myself to watch it because like there is a zero percent chance that Adam Back is Satoshi. <laughs> yeah, guys, guys, I'm not Satoshi, but I swear there are ten thousand reasons that you should think I'm just <laughs> about the pescu. I. I more than anyone, if you go back and you read Popescu, just go read his stuff and go read what he was saying in the devlogs. Everybody who is is sort of a crazy person in core today sounds exactly like Popescu. It sounds like they're right. trying to imitate Popescu. Like, yes. It was, yeah. Look at Seifdeen. I always thought Seifdeen was sort of imitating Nassim Taleb. And to some extent he was, which is why it was funny when Taleb blocked him on Twitter publicly. <laughs> um, but uh, more importantly, you can see deliberate imitation of Popescu's style, Popescu's mannerisms, yeah, everything absolutely. about him. Yeah, that's why I said he's the original cult leader. Yeah. yeah. No, it's yeah. crazy. It's like a trip through his cult derives from him. Yeah, a crazy, a crazy person who was threatening to murder people online. <laughs> and, you know, arguably, it looks like he was paying uh, DDoSers to attack uh, Bitcoin XT. And all sorts of other, you know, crazy, crazy nonsense. So I'm, I'm working on some Bitcoin stuff right now. And I, I happen to have the, the book right oh, here. Talib. Oh, my God. He, he thanks Popescu Talib. at the end of the book. The oh, forward is written by Talib. Yeah. 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 Talib disowned him. I had no idea. <laughs> well, what's even funnier is Talib says in the book that it, which I, I, he says, we can always recreate Bitcoin if Bitcoin fails. 
And and Saifdean says that's like a horrible, you can never possibly ever, from the original BTC, you can never do anything that would possibly beat it. But Popescu is thanked at the end of the book in the credits as one of the influences on the book, which is, to me, very, I mean, just damning of, 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 uh, you know, in proof of the, of the idea that Popescu is behind a lot of this. So, so I, I sometimes think of Derek as uh, Bitcoin Jesus because he <laughs> read Safdine's book so that he didn't have to. You, know, like, <laughs> you, took, you took it upon yourself. Daniel, I got to ask you, speaking of Bitcoin Jesus, I want to hear your take on what happened with Bitcoin Cash that caused the split with SV and like, how do you read Bitcoin Cash and that faction of big block Bitcoin and, and where, where did it go wrong in your, in your opinion, since obviously you're, you're, you are placing your bet on SV. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I, I see Bitcoin cash as, uh, having, um, orchestrated. Well, I, I see Bitcoin as being the victim of a second takeover attempt that's similar to Bitcoin core, but, one that is uh, more more inept and more ridiculous. So Mark said history repeats itself first as tragedy and then as farce. <laughs> so to me, so well, so Amory, he's another narcissist. So he believes that, uh, or I should say he, he acts, to put himself in control of everything, regardless of how much that that hurts the the system, and uh, he's he's incapable of acting in a mode where he's not trying to gain control, and uh, he um, he manipulated people into uh, rejecting. People who didn't like that, uh, similar to Core, and I don't want to see. I don't think Omri is the only one doing this kind of thing, but he kind of he kind of leapt into a good position for it, and so he has a lot of uh, a lot of clout, and I think it's um, really really crazy how he, how people allow themselves to be uh, treated like shit by him who are, are clearly uh, more competent and more intelligent. Why why did they, why did they? I don't know. Because when I go back and look at like those conversations that I wasn't privy to at the time, but some of the audio that leaked from that conference where everyone was yelling and everybody knows about Craig Wright coming out and saying, everybody is playing limp biscuit and all these inflammatory things. (laughs) But then, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but then, so you just assume, oh, well, Craig must have offended everybody. But then you hear what Amari's saying in there and you're like, who would want to be like, yeah, I'm joining with this guy. Like what, why, <laughs> what made people do that? Yeah, when I listened to that audio, I thought that is so crazy. <laughs> like <laughs> so, I'll side with anybody but that guy. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, Amari can code. It's just, well, it's just another core dev thing. It's people are, have been, been tricked into thinking that the ability to program is something special. And um, it, 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 it just isn't. So Omri is fine when he's a, a programmer, but when he's a, uh, a benevolent dictator, 
then he's not very good. It was a savvy move by him. I don't know how this exactly played out, but to be the one to immediately initiate the fork because he basically gets to be in the forever big block Bitcoin lore by he's the one who heroically forked pre-Segwit. And that gave him so much standing and credibility. The fact that he got there first and so everyone kind of looked to him and the ABC was that first client. Um, and it's kind of uh, looking back, like it's too bad that someone else didn't beat him to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, <sighs> he's horrible, but <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of horrible people in, in Bitcoin cash too. Um, so let's see, special mention for Amin Gun. Suir, I don't yeah, know. The Cornell I hope I'm name. pronouncing his name correctly, but <laughs> he's just like the classic like academic who believes that he knows everything yeah. and wants to have arguments all the time, but doesn't want to take risks on anything. He just wants to get get control without um uh without risking that he's uh He's losing money on his so uh, investing in business. Yeah, he's he's Ellsworth Tui. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, you said uh, very refreshingly that success is not guaranteed for Bitcoin or BSV in, in this case. You're making your bet on it. You believe there's a you know prob- high probability or higher than the other options that it succeeds. But given that it's not guaranteed, what are the things that you would see as the the biggest possible reasons? Use your imagination and imagine failure scenarios for BSV. What are the biggest potential points that would cause BSV to fail? Well, uh, I, I think that, um, so to me, um, the main reason that Bitcoin would fail is people misunderstanding their own interests so badly that they they ruin their their opportunity in bitcoin so like right now there's um the potential that eventually uh the the government will sort of jump in and try to shut everything down in bitcoin um because there's been so much um so much going on in bitcoin that's just illegal that um the, the government might not might not distinguish very well and might just try to ruin everything. Um, but really, uh, if people in government were thinking about their own interest, they would also realize that they can benefit a lot from Bitcoin. Um, and so um, to me, like Bitcoin becomes uh, safer um the the more opportunity people have to just spend time thinking about it thinking about their options um cuz when they do they'll they'll find something good for themselves um but when when they act uh rashly without thinking there there could be something that would just uh end bitcoin um and uh, I think that uh, um, I, I think that that's sort of what I would be most concerned with, because I think that people in BSV right now 
basically understand the idea. So if there wasn't um, someone who might come in and uh, just try to destroy everything, they would be able to make Bitcoin successful. And, um, uh, and, but as time goes on, they're going to be able to create more options for, for people outside of Bitcoin to benefit from Bitcoin. And then it's going to be easier for other people to understand what their options are. And uh, um, to me, that's, that's what creates the, the success scenario for Bitcoin. Uh, I've got a question uh, question for you. I want to ask you about Phil Wilson, by the way. I don't know if you've read his story, so hopefully we'll get around to that later. But I was hoping you could um, teach us a bit about the whole concept of Turing completeness and how it relates to Bitcoin. Because I've, I've tried to dig into the surface level of it, and it seems like actually the concept of Turing completeness itself is kind of a wonky concept, much less its application to uh, Bitcoin because it deals with uh, infinite loops, infinite processes. And there's a whole issue there with infinity, which I'd be happy to talk about, but um, I'm not, not going <laughs> to, to talk about <laughs> putting I, this stuff sign there. Yeah. I have also let Steve dive into Turing completeness so that he could then explain it to me. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Turing completeness um, means uh, that um, uh, you have a system that can uh, that can uh, perform any computation that uh, can be run by a Turing machine that halts. So um, uh, a Turing machine has a specific definition that's kind of complicated. Well. Let, let's let's step back a bit, okay? So back in the early days of computer science, when it wasn't any different from math, um, people had this idea that you could have a machine that replaces a mathematician, or I should say, some people were were wondering about whether that would be possible, and um, and they they were thinking about whether all math could be formalized and uh specifically the question that was um the the big question was given a a mathematical statement um uh like the statement of a a result of a proof would a machine be able to say uh whether a proof exists and what what the proof is so you you tell the machine you know a squared plus b squared equals c squared does the machine come up with the pythagorean theorem um so um uh what um godel did was in his his proof of um, uh, the incompleteness theorem, one of the steps that he took was to uh, translate math mathematical proof checking operations to arithmetic operations. 
So he devised a way of translating a, a proof-checking um, proof operations into number operations. Um, and that, that showed that proof-checking could be done by a machine. And so then um, uh, Turing decided to think about what, what could this proof-checking machine do in general. Uh, so um, Godel kind of came up with the idea of the proof-checking machine and Turing decided to think about what can it do other than proof checking. So just what's the general theory of everything that this machine can do? And um, so he came up with the computable functions. And well, first, first he designed the Turing machine, which is a very simple ideal computer uh, that is capable of being this Godel proof checking machine. And then he defined the computable functions. And these are the functions, the, the math functions that can be, um, can be implemented by this machine. And so a math function, that means that there is an output for every input. And that's different from what computer scientists now call a function because a computer function can run into an infinite loop and not return an output. So um, the computable functions are the, the total functions that can be implemented with a Turing machine. So later, other people came up with other ideal models of computation. So Church came up with the lambda calculus, I think, and um, well, Godel came up with the recursive partial functions, and these together are the three most important um, early models of computing. And um, what the early computer scientists proved uh, about these models is that they are all uh, they all compute the same functions. So this class of functions that Turing defined called the computable functions is also the class of functions that can be computed by the lambda calculus or the partial recursive functions. And this is now understood to be kind of a general result in computer science, which is that after your system achieves a certain relatively low level of complexity, then it can compute the computable functions. So you might have heard of Stephen Wolfram and Rule 131, uh, which is a simple cellular automaton that he also proved is Turing complete. Um, uh, there's, it, it's, it's relatively easy to get the computable functions, but you can't go past the computable functions either. Yeah, uh, some so, might say humans can't either, but that's a different discussion. Right. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so um, uh, 
so a Turing complete machine is a machine that can implement any of the computable functions. So um, now normally, so the, the reason that people were arguing with, with Craig Wright about this, well, there's a bunch of different points, but I think the main one is that uh, the, the Bitcoin computer does not go into infinite, infinite loops um, because it doesn't have a looping construct. So if you want it to iterate, you have to give it a, you have to specify a finite number of iterations and it will only do that many. But that's still enough to, um, to implement uh, the, the computable functions you you just have to um, give it as many iterations as as it needs. Well, so, uh, so Craig Craig's point is you can compute any computable number. So you you don't need to um, write out the computable function in a finite form. You can you can implement the function um, with uh, uh, with as many steps as many as many steps as you want so um, correct me if i'm wrong that doesn't seem like that remarkable a uh a state for a computer to be in is that it is turing complete or for some machine to be in to say that it is turing complete i mean couldn't i you know reprogram my tamagotchi and essentially be able to compute any computable function with a long enough set of instructions? Yes. Um, there's a, an interesting website called Accidental Turing Completeness. And uh, that website talks about the game Magic the Gathering as an example. <laughs> you have a big enough deck of cards, or I should say, I'm not, I don't quite remember how it works. You probably use those little magic tokens for it. Because you can, if you had an infinite or an un, I should say, an unbounded number of them, then um, then you can compute the computable functions with the game Magic: The Gathering. So yeah, it, you get Turing completeness pretty easily just uh, just by accident. So the, so so why would there be such controversy over this point and so many words written by academics and others who say oh my gosh it's the most preposterous thing to claim that bitcoin is turing complete where it doesn't actually seem like it's claiming very much at all it's like saying it's a very basic computer well yeah the the bitcoin script language um well um so uh well yeah i mean it's it's because people uh it's it's easy to understand turing completeness in terms of looping constructs right with the bitcoins which the bitcoin script language doesn't have um and but if you if you go back to the original definition then uh bitcoin is turing complete according to that so, but it's so, not it's not what a uh it's not what a professional programmer would normally think that Turing completeness means. So would you say that you, you think their conceptual confusion is to believe that in, uh, there are some computable functions which require loops in a programming language in order to compute? 
it's it's just that when you have looping constructs, then it's easy to do. All right, but but I'm saying there when they think, oh, it's not Turing complete. That would be the error that they're making is thinking that it requires oh. looping in their programming language. Right. Yes, I think okay. that that's what's going on. But there was another argument that I had had on Twitter with a a shell. I'm pretty sure I was talking to a paid shell, but he was also saying that Bitcoin is not Turing complete uh, because the the miners do not run the computation. They merely, uh, they merely check the computation that somebody else did when you create the transaction. But uh, that, so, so conversely, this person was saying that Ethereum is Turing complete because the miners there are actually implementing the, the computation. But that's, that's also incorrect because there's there's also the concept of a non-deterministic uh, computer, and what that means is that um, the computer accepts a computation, uh, and it says this computation succeeds or it fails, and it can accept. It's possible for it to accept different computations that start from the same initial number uh, because there's just there's just more things that are allowed uh, and that's why it's non-deterministic because there are different branches that are allowed to occur from a given initial point and so it, it makes more sense to think of Bitcoin as a non-deterministic Turing machine because people can make uh, they they create a computation when they make a transaction and then the Bitcoin miners accept or, or reject the computation, but they're not, they're not determined to produce a particular computation. They have, yeah, I, they have options. I remember talking to Ryan Charles something about this idea and he was making the case that actually that's a benefit of Bitcoin. And others have said that too, is that the fact that you don't have the entirety of the, of the miners executing the code per se, um, it, like gives you scaling benefits essentially. Right. And well, Ethereum has gas and Bitcoin doesn't need that because uh, miners can value the computations that they're given without having to run them because it's roughly proportional to the length. And there are some operations that require a lot more like, like hashing and, um, and signature checking, but basically the 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 size of the computation in the in the um, the script that you give the miner is going to be proportional to the computational cost that they're going to uh, um, that that's that's going to be imposed on them by accepting it. Mm. So um, that's why we can say something like a Bitcoin transaction is a certain number of Satoshis per byte, but you can't do that in Ethereum because a computation that you give a miner can be very short. Right. Very complex. It, right. It can actually be infinite. So you need to have gas and you need to ensure that you have put enough gas in your transaction for it to run and if you don't get through the whole thing before you run out of gas, then 
you don't you don't get anything for it <laughs> and they need that because you can give the miner an infinite loop so there has to be something that prevents the miner from going into infinity that, that is a that is uh that difference between ethereum and bitcoin the way you just described it is the best breakdown of it i've heard that was a really good clear description guys as we're as we're trying to bring it around we have a little bit of time left Steve, you mentioned Phil Wilson. I would love to get your thoughts, Daniel, on Phil Wilson and his story. Is that uh, Scranty? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, but I just haven't been looking into these different Satoshi claims. <laughs> um, to me, um, it is a a distraction that it will will be interesting to me once I am. Um, once I can relax, like once I have some leisure time. But for now, I'm working on making Bitcoin successful. And uh, that, that's something that I have uh, not, not made time for. And uh, Guys, me, I think he's calling us lazy for being so fascinated by the Craig Wright saga or the, well, the Satoshi to me, saga. To me, Craig Wright is someone who I want as my ally. And... Whether he's Satoshi or not is is that's not something that that changes whether I want him as my ally. And uh, you know, I don't think that he's a perfect person, um, regardless of whether he's lying about being Satoshi. To me, he's someone whose ideas are so important that it would be really bad not to want to take advantage of them. So you, you said on a video that you saw Craig as a buck with big antlers. Um, yes. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you go just briefly into like, like, in what way is Craig costly signaling in your eyes? Well, um, there's a, a tweet that he showed on one of his blog posts where he said that you should act like a fool in order to throw off your opponents. And I thought that that was interesting because I did this video about him where I said he was acting like Groucho. And yeah. the joke of the movie uh, Animal Crackers is that Groucho is much more intelligent than the other people in the movie. So he can act like a fool, but he he also is in control of the situation. And I interpreted Craig's acting like a fool as a costly signal uh, as something that um, uh, that you someone you need to look past in order to see what he's really up to and so I saw it as like a, a barrier of entry that is um, uh, rejecting people who don't want to think about the situation enough so I think he he was um, thinking about what he was doing a little bit differently than how how I interpreted it. But to me, he was acting like someone who was attracting lots of attention by acting uh, a bit goofy. And um, but uh, but in a way that that would reject people who had uh, a an idea of um, who 
you know, who, who they thought was good. Um, and so I think that what we've seen in BSV is um, the, uh, the people trying to destroy Bitcoin have been sort of misdirected by this. And the people who kind of had a, a better idea about what's necessary for success were able to kind of see that um, what's happening in, in BSV is what's successful. Yeah, I, I joked with the guys a while ago on Boxer that it felt like BSV took a lot of the best people, but then like a lot of crazy people too. Like, well, did yeah. you think that cost that costly signal seems to also attract like kind of like weirdos who 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 seemed like like the only time they've ever heard a thought on economics is because of Craig. Yeah, and and like so they they try to very unsuccessfully parrot him and sound very stupid when they talk about Bitcoin. And yet the argument would be, I guess, that they're not actually economically relevant necessarily. Yeah, I mean, well, isn't this weird how Bitcoin is supposed to be money contrasted with how much people in Bitcoin don't want to know what money is? Yeah. Because <laughs> I've been trying to explain it ever since I got into Bitcoin and uh, uh, very few people have, have wanted to understand what I was talking about. But we want to talk about what Tone Vase tweeted about Craig Wright's wife's court case. Come on, Daniel. <laughs> we don't want to know what money is. Speaking of money, I went back to your uh, article, um, which everybody who's listening should read, called um, It's Not About the Technology, It's About the Money, which is just such an awesome article. I was reading it in response to this, this ABC dev had tweeted that the only serious competition to Bitcoin Cash is Nano and Dash, and that therefore Bitcoin Cash <laughs> needs you know, some extra features in order to be competitive. Oh and I thought, my God. <laughs> I thought, that's crazy talk, because he doesn't understand money. Yeah. And I mean, if we put a bird on it, people will want it more, you know? I mean, to me, like the value of Bitcoin has always been the other Bitcoiners. And it's the design of Bitcoin, the system that enables people to be valuable to one another. But <laughs> without, I think the sorry, just to make a half joke, I think one of the worst parts of Bitcoin is the other Bitcoiners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the vast majority of Bitcoiners are not doing much to be a, a part of the value of Bitcoin. But I've, I've found some good ones. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Bitcoin is only going to work by Bitcoiners being valuable to each other. And that kind of means you, you have to accept whoever comes in, even if they're, you know, a little bit rough around the edges or something. And you have to figure out what you can do to work with them. But um, I mean, lots of people who got into Bitcoin are just incapable of doing that. <laughs> so most of what I, I mean, from like 2014 to 18 or so, the main thing that I've been doing is just trying to find anyone who is uh, 
worth cooperating with. And that's kind of the reason that I did my Bitcoin stuff show. It's, it's kind of I shout into, uh, into the darkness because it's designed for, uh, to attract worthwhile people that I would like. And um, so, um, uh, and fortunately that worked uh, as far as I can tell. So now, now I know lots of people who I think are good. But yeah, for a while, it was like anyone who even remotely understood Bitcoin was sort of uh, isolated from, uh, from everyone else because of the vast number of people who thought Bitcoin was about something else, something that has nothing to do with money. Uh, the uh, the idea of the handicap principle. Sorry, going back just a little bit about you know Craig having big antlers. I think it's easy to think of the the, the one aspect discussed in that book, or of the concept biologically of you know costly signaling to attract a mate or as an attractive quality. But there's also the um, you know, and you might look at Craig Wright and be like, well, what, what is he doing to attract people with this kind of stuff? But there's also the, in the well, predator-prey relationship. He's, when the, he's the demonstrating prey... opportunity costs. Sorry to interrupt, but... No, no. If, if you can, I, like I think Don Quixote has a costly signal because he's, um, he's able to act crazy. Most people can't afford to. But, but I, think it also, I think it also has a, you know, the, the prey does some high energy expenditure, you know, movement and and it signals to the predator that I've got a lot of energy and apparently I'm confident enough that I think I have energy to spare. Now they could be bluffing and the predator could try to chase them down anyway, but the predator is going to say, eh, I don't know if I want to try to call that bluff because my energy is scarce too. And so when Craig acts in those ways, I think it's also a signal it's like at the poker table, the dude who just like goes all in on the first hand and you're yeah. like, um, okay, you might be crazy, but you make me not want to go against you in battle because there's too much unpredictability and you're signaling something. And so like, it's an interesting way to make people not want to oppose him. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite things from Craig was his, his letter to um, Roger Ver, where he's like, welcome to bankruptcy. Oh, God. <laughs> that email was so crazy. I almost died laughing. It, it, was, it was really funny. I, mean, I wouldn't want to receive an email like that. But it was also like just zany. Derek's, yeah, was, Derek's favorite is uh, that Craig loves to threaten people with Thai prison, specifically yeah. Thai prison. It's not just prison. It's a Thai prison. That's <laughs> oh, my God. Up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, you don't want, you don't want Thai prison. <laughs> so my hey, friend, my friend, Andreas, um, not Antonopoulos, Andreas Brecken. Yes. He, he knows a little bit about Thai prison because he lives in uh, Thailand. So, well, okay. Okay. I have that. to ask you, I have, I'm so glad you brought up Andreas Brecken because <laughs> this is a very random, obscure question. You may not even remember, but you and Andreas right after the SV fork, you went together on some podcast, like Bitcoin <laughs> Boys or something, the, and they yes. were like pro SV. And Andreas, they 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 pegged Andreas as pro Bitcoin Cash, and and but they heard him um, criticize the checkpointing or something like that that had been done. And so 
they had him come on with you. And it appeared to me as if they thought they were getting Andreas and they were going to have this moment where he was like, we were wrong. Bitcoin cash is wrong. Bitcoin <laughs> SP is right. And, and he would, and, and he just kept trolling them or like telling them, no, no, checkpoints are just a part of everything. I don't, how about you buy, go to sideshift.ai. Right. I'm yeah. Trying to okay. Let me tell and you, you about and that. And you were yeah. just laughing the whole time and it felt like you set these poor guys up to be embarrassed <laughs> yeah, I did. by Andreas. Okay. Yeah. Let me explain what happened there. Um, so this is another great uh, trolling uh, video that I did. And so what I thought was going to happen, so this was on the Bitcoin SV podcast, and it's an early episode with, um, uh, with uh, Captain Bitcoin, a.k.a. Shem, uh, the Bitcoin Tramp, and uh, Sir Toshi. Yeah. And um, the, <laughs> these, they're really funny together. Uh, they're not they're not doing the show together anymore, but they were really funny when when they were doing it together, and um, so they were. I uh, they talked a bit before about how much they hated Andreas Brecken, and Andreas invited me to go and visit him. So I thought maybe they would want him on the show so they can come to a better understanding. <laughs> <laughs> and what I thought was going to happen is that. They would if, try to sell Andreas on Bitcoin SV and sort of like talk about what's good about it. <laughs> but they didn't do that at all. <laughs> they really just, uh, uh, they tried, yeah, yeah. They, they wanted an apology. Trying, they wanted yeah, atonement, was the word they used. They, right. They were trying to get him to atone for his sins uh, <laughs> because Andreas said some really incendiary things during the, um, the uh, Bitcoin SV split. And so they hated him. And I don't know where they got the idea that he was going to atone for himself. Um, to me, you would just you would want people from outside of Bitcoin SV on the show to kind of explain I, I think, the idea to them. But I think they, they assumed didn't. that the fact that you suggested him meant that this was well. Then he must be ready to because yeah. TK has gotten some of that same stuff when we do this show, and Steve and Derek and I have been more critical of SV than TK, or or less completely bought in and a little more open to, to BCH in some of the episodes. And people have literally asked TK, like SV fans, like TK, we love you, but how can you stand? How can you associate with these people? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they're genuinely confused, like because they couldn't imagine themselves doing something like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I, I mean, I what I thought is that I was giving them an opportunity to practice <laughs> something that's very important, which is sort of being a salesman, but. <laughs> They didn't want to do that at all. And so Andreas just spent the whole time advertising his new business. <laughs> well, I loved when he offered them, uh, he told them he'll buy them a copy of Economics in One Lesson and send it to them. <laughs> and he was just adamant about it. And they got so offended. And it was like right around the time they said they ended the call. Well, and they, were like, they were like looking at you, Daniel, expecting you to to come and save them from his onslaught and you were just laughing and they felt so betrayed or confused. It was, it was amazing. They were so mad. <laughs> but they, I'm sorry. They totally, uh, they totally blew it. They should have been, uh, they should have been ready with some, some, uh, 
some some explanation for why why somebody who was initially opposed to BSV would want to join, but they didn't. <laughs> hey guys, we got to bring this bring this around. This has been incredible, Daniel. There's so many things. There's so many more things I want to talk to you about, and more have spun out of this that we're going to have to do this again in the future uh, for for sure. But any any final thoughts you want to leave with us before we wrap it up? Um, well, um, I'm just really glad that you wanted me on your show, and um, I'm I see really good things for your show in the future because I think that the the team you've assembled is uh, some of the the smartest people that I know. So I I think you're going to have some great discussions in the future, and. Um, uh, so I'm pleased to be uh, an honorary numpty this time, and I'll be happy to join again. We yeah, really enjoyed this. It's yeah, been great. Yeah, f- the 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 five numpties will have to reunite again. And we can do a, a Steve and Daniel debate session over the uh, the question of merchants. Yeah, and and, yeah. and yeah, I, I think I that. I think I had enough of that. We need <laughs> we, don't, we need something <laughs> else. And and Calvin will try to be a. Uh, no, no promises that will try to be dignified. I'm not going to promise that at all. So <laughs> anyway, I uh, had a lot of fun, guys. Until next time.